0: If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me John and chapter 14, John and chapter 14. Uh, this is a, uh, the first part of a three-part series that we're going to do um, on the topic of and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and uh, that's why uh, we are looking for songs in the next three weeks that are more uh, about the Trinity, about the Holy Spirit, and so um, this triune prayer that we just sang is going to be the song that we sing before every sermon during this Three week series. God willing, we will start the book of Luke and the Gospel of Luke on November 14th. Okay, so if you don't have a scripture journal by now, we still have plenty. Four bucks a pop. Uh, Make sure you grab yours before uh, November 14th. So today we're going to be, we're going to look at various texts in John 14, 15, and 16. So please do have your Bible uh, open so you can follow along. We're going to start in 14, verses 15 through 31. Okay, so that's what we're going to read from Jump, and then I'll guide us. Uh, the rest of the way. So if you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's go ahead and read this together. John 14, starting in verse 15. John 14, starting in v- verse 15. God's word says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This, of course, is Jesus. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Amen. This is God's word. And may God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. Let's take a quick poll. How many of you have heard a sermon in person where the topic was exclusively about the doctrine of the Trinity? Like, that was the main purpose of the the whole sermon. Raise your hand. On the Trinity. Okay. Guy, are you undecided? Okay. (laughs) Ish? Is that? Okay, now... How many of you have heard in person a sermon that was exclusively on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? Like, the Holy Spirit was the main point of the whole sermon. Okay. Okay. What about how many of you have done, maybe more, we'll raise their hands for this. How many of you have done like a Bible study or small group study or something about the Trinity or the Holy Spirit? Okay, actually less, all right. Recently... The finding, how many of you didn't raise your hand because you're afraid of being Pentecostal? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Very on brand, right? Recently, the findings of a survey done by the C- Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University on beliefs about Christian doctrine was released. I don't know if any of you saw this, and it was pretty alarming. And to be fair, <laughs> surveys of Christian doctrine are typically pretty unsettling but this was exceptionally so. This is what the executive director of that group who conducted the survey said. She said, a full 69% of U.S. adults self-identify as Christian. Yet a closer look at this large swath of the American population reveals their professed Christian faith is built on disturbingly shaky theological grounds. Okay, so concerning the Holy Spirit, and this is what, seeing this survey really is what prompted my thoughts on doing this sermon series on the Spirit, found that of self-identified Christians, 58% contend that the Holy Spirit is not real. Living being, but is merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. Gets worse, okay? Surprisingly, those who identify as born-again Christians are even more likely so there's like three tiers of Christians, right? These self-identified Christians, right? They say, are you a Christian? And they say, yes. The other ones, are you bo- would you classify yourself as born again? Okay. This group said, yes, I'm born again. They're more likely <laughs> to hold that view of the Holy Spirit. Half of the theologically born-again Christians deny that the Spirit is a being. Even among those with the most Biblical worldview, so the ones who had consistently good doctrine on this survey, what they called the integrated disciples, 40% hold an unbiblical view of the Holy Spirit, 40. It's shocking, but is it surprising? The doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit are difficult doctrines. Would you agree with me on that? They aren't easy to navigate, but they are crucial, (laughs) they are important And why? Because when we worship God, when we read the Bible, when we talk of creation and salvation and consummation, we're talking about a God who is three in one. We we are to think about a triune God, a God that is simultaneously revealed in Scripture as being one God while also eternally existing as three distinct persons. And we as humans, we have a deep desire and one that grows by the day to understand things fully. Do you think that's true? More than ever, we seek, we want to know. We want to be able to have all the info, and we want to have it how quick? As soon as possible, ASAP. I mean, you just think 20 years ago? If you were debating your friend about like a certain actor was in a movie or who the rushing leader in college football was in 1974, or what the lyrics to a song were stuck in your head was, you'd have to be content, right? Not knowing the answer. (laughs) Or at least until you could get to your computer and fire up that AOL, right? And before the internet, you just have to be okay with not having the answer. But now, we're spoiled rotten, aren't we? Because we can pull out those incessant rectangles in our pockets... (laughs) And get the answers how quick? Spoil instantaneously. Further, we want to, and this is not inherently a bad thing, but we want to be able to grab a hold of things, to fully comprehend. We want them to make utter sense to us. But the Trinity, it doesn't lend itself to being fully grasped by finite minds. But since God has revealed himself as triune, the study is a worthy, lifelong pursuit for the Christian because as Christians, we should have a deep desire, do you agree with me on this? We should have a deep desire to know God as he is known. And how is he known? As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equally and eternally neither confounding their persons nor dividing their essence, as the Athanasian Creed articulates. And because of our desire to grab hold of this concept and our ingrained cultural insistence on being able to fully understand, we may try to explain the Trinity using illustrations or analogies. Have you heard this done? Because those things help us, right? Illustrations and analogies help us understand. We may say, okay, God is one but he exists as three equal persons without being three gods or appearing in three modes. Give me an example, right? Give me an example that I would know to help me comprehend it. Maybe your kids would ask you to do this also. What's the Trinity? Give me an example. So you may say the Trinity is like a shamrock or like the sun as it is a star, light, and heat or as water as a liquid vapor and solid or how a man can be a father, husband, and son or as three-in-one soap, you know three-in-one soap? All the guys are like, yep. The women are like, what? It's body and conditioner, and shampoo all in one convenient bottle. Or like an egg or an apple, right, with its three parts. Or like a divine committee or council. But any analogy you try to come up with the Trinity will fall eternally short. As well as causing us to be accidental heretics. We will either fall into thinking God appears in three different modes or we will fall into thinking the parts of the Trinity are each like, like the shamrock, one-third of a God, rather than each being fully God while simultaneously one. Here's the thing about the Trinity. The Trinity is not like anything. The problem with illustration on this topic tend to end up making God to be an impersonal thing. Not personal, not loving, not like the Father, Son, and Spirit at all. So it is with the Holy Spirit. As that survey reveals, many professing Christians believe the Holy Spirit to be a thing. Not an eternal person of the Godhead. Equal with the Father and the Son in essence and glory. And this is a tragic mistake, as we will see. And so my intent with this short series before we dive into the lanky study on Luke's gospel is to help us to see the importance of seeing the Holy Spirit for who he truly is. And for you to be amazed at the surpassing greatness of our simultaneously one but eternally three God. And this leads us into our first point. We'll have four this morning. Point number one. The Holy Spirit is a divine person equal with the Father and the Son. Okay, point number one. The Holy Spirit is a divine person equal, bless you, with the Father and the Son. I primarily want to direct your attention to the language used in this first passage that we read, okay, in John 14. Now, I want you to understand the context that this appears in. It's, it's what's called Jesus' farewell discourse, okay, which took place directly before his crucifixion. The disciples, you understand, as you would be, are nervous because they fear Jesus leaving them. Like, what are we going to do without you with us? So what we have before us is reassurance from Jesus that he will not leave them as orphans, as we saw in verse 18, but that he and the other members of the Trinity have a plan, right, to care for them and guide them even after Jesus leaves to ascend to the right hand of the Father. What Jesus says here is paramount to our basic understanding of the Holy Spirit and what he does. Specifically, I want you to notice the language that Jesus uses, Which shows us that the Holy Spirit is a person in equality with Jesus and the Father. Notice verse 16. Look again at verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another, what? Helper to be with you for how long? Forever, right? Jesus says that after he ascends, following his death and resurrection, the disciples will be given another helper. Now, if you mark in your Bible, you've made notes, you underline, circle, underline, star, that word, another, okay? Because this is important. Now, there are two Greek words that can be used for this word, another, okay? One means another of a different kind, and the other means another of the same kind. Which one do you think that John uses? Another of the same kind. The implication here is that Christ himself, yes, is the first helper, you guys tracking with me? That's the implication. And the second helper is comparable to him in his personhood, since he's another of the same kind. Who would question the personhood of Jesus? No Christian, right? No Christian would say that Jesus is not divine. Nor would they say that he isn't one with the Father. Nor should the personhood of the Holy Spirit be questioned either. And you'll notice that the Spirit will be said to do the things that Jesus was doing during his earthly ministry. So the Spirit will continue the work of Jesus after Jesus ascends to the Father after his resurrection. But notice that Jesus speaks of the Spirit using language that you would not use for a non-person or a force or a thing. For example, just look at verse 17, for example. How many times does he use the masculine personal pronoun him, right? To refer to the Spirit. And he does the same thing in 14, 15, and 16. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees what? Him, nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and I will and will be with you. Not it. Right? Also, think about how the spirit is talked about in the rest of the New Testament. He's talked about in language that would only make sense if he were a divine person. He speaks. He intercedes. He performs miracles. He testifies. He constrains. He appoints. He bestows gifts. He has a mind. He sanctifies. He leads. He has a will. And we're even told he grieves, which means he has emotions and affections. I think we can all agree that you can resist power, but you can only grieve a person. Is that fair? I can't grieve that chair, or that wall, or this podium, but I can grieve my wife. Just ask her, okay? Actually, don't. Don't ask her, okay? Only a person can be grieved. You can't grieve a force or an object. Are you with me on this? But you also see that the Holy Spirit is clearly divine by the way Jesus equates the Spirit's presence with the presence of him and the Father. And through his language of the Spirit's present presence being tantamount to having the Father and the Son. Look at verse 21 again. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest. He said, I will manifest myself to him. Right? Jesus says that those who love him, he will manifest himself to that person then in 23 jesus says that he will come to the believer and he and the father will make their home with them then in 26 he says the helper will be sent by the father in the name of the son to do what jesus did while on earth with his disciples which is to teach them but then i want you to consider verse 28 jesus is going away but he will come to them do you see that you then you, you look at 16.7. 16.7, check this out. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Isn't that a startling claim? Jesus says, it's better. It's better that he leaves because then he and the Father will send them the Holy Spirit. Now let me ask this, okay? If the Holy Spirit were not God, if he were like a force or an it, if he was not equal to the Father and the Son, how on earth could it be better that we receive the Spirit rather than having Jesus physically with us? Jesus is saying there in 16.7 that it is better to have the Spirit indwelling you than to have Jesus physically standing next to you. That can only be said if the Holy Spirit was a person, is a person in the Godhead. But you also think about the fact that in those verses I just mentioned how Jesus says both that he is leaving and that he will be with them. How does that work? It's because the persons of the Trinity are so intimately connected that to have one is to what? Have them all. Michael Reeves, I'm going to quote him several times, he wrote this incredible book. I wish every Christian would read this book. It's called Delighting in the Trinity. It's brilliant. He said this, The life that the Spirit gives is not some abstract thing. In fact, it is not primarily some thing that He gives at all. The Spirit gives us His very self. Think about that. That we might know and enjoy Him and so enjoy His fellowship with the Father and the Son. Now, all of this may hurt in your head a little, right? <laughs> but what we need to get from this is that when we give our allegiance to Jesus, we're adopted by the Father, and we are thus indwelt with the Holy Spirit, who is God. Why don't you consider the enormity of this, friends? Be overwhelmed by the gravity of this. That's the sense you should get from this study. not that the Trinity is, is difficult, doctor, and so why bother? Which is how some people approach it, but an overwhelming sense that one gets when studying the deep things of God and the incredible truth that the Holy Spirit intends to live with us, and that He is none other than God himself. Is that not incredible? Can I get a witness? <laughs> I promise nobody's going to confuse you guys for Pentecostal, okay? You could get a little animated, right? It's going to be okay. Like, truly, would it really be good news to the disciples or to us to know that Jesus died and rose and ascended in order to send us a force? Isn't that good news? Would it be better to have an abstract thing rather than Jesus physically present? What we're being told is that. The Spirit, just think about this, okay. The Spirit who hovered over the face of the deep in Genesis 1. The Spirit who brought about the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary. The Spirit who led Jesus, as we'll see in Luke, in the wilderness and through his ministry. The Spirit who brought Jesus back from the dead is God himself. And he dwells with all of those who love Jesus. Isn't that incredible? We must not then think of the Holy Spirit in less than divine or personal terms. You know, when I read that survey that mentioned at the beginning where a significant number of professing Christians believe the Spirit is a force, do you know what I thought of? If you know me, you know what I thought of. Star Wars. (laughs) Thank you. In Star Wars, if you haven't seen it, I know, Jeff, I'm not even going to look at you. You haven't seen it. I get it, all right? Uh, Star Wars, there's this force, right? It's immaterial energy field, essentially, that binds all life forms together. And there's like this special group of people who have higher concentrations of it, and they can manipulate the force or harness it to use it for good or bad or, you know, move objects or sense things that are going to happen or whatever. Some talk of the Holy Spirit like he's the force from Star Wars. Like, Like an impersonal gravity field that could be manipulated for the purpose of a select group of people. That's not who the Holy Spirit is. He is a person in the Trinity, and he is equal. There's no hierarchy in the Trinity. He is equal with the Father and the Son, who will dwell with those who give their lives to Jesus, and why. Our following points speak to some of these reasons. Let's look at them. Point number two. The Spirit convicts and comforts okay the spirit convicts and comforts for this would you join me in chapter 16 and let's look at verses 7 through 11 chapter 16 and verses 7 through 11 don't you love that sound of pages turning in bibles You can't get that with your iPhone or tablet, can you? 16.7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage. We just looked at this. That I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteous, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer concerning judgment. Because the ruler of this world is judged. So here... Jesus says that the Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness and judgment. He will show us how sinful we are. He he will show us how much we lack righteousness and that judgment is impending because of those things, because of sin and our lack of righteousness. That sounds gloomy, doesn't it? But what does this show us? This shows us that we cannot, this is important to get, okay? If you take one thing away, This is one that I would really like you to take away. We cannot be saved without the work of the Holy Spirit. Not only because without the Spirit, there is no gospel. (laughs) Since since he's the one who resurrected Jesus from the dead, and without the resurrection from the dead, there is no gospel. But because without our being shown supernaturally just how sinful we are, just how lacking in righteousness we are, and that we deserve the just deserts of that sin and rebellion, we would never come to see our need for Jesus and his work and his beauty or be outraged by his grace. Without the Spirit coming and showing us the utter depths of our sinfulness, there's no way we would embrace Christ. I mean, if the Spirit doesn't do this, who will? The whole world, you'll agree with me on this, the whole world just wants to flood you with the idea that you're super awesome. Yes? And that everyone is basically good except for like people on the other side of the political aisle, right? And how all the potential you need for fulfillment lies where? Within. And that if there is a God, all he's really interested in is being the vehicle to unlock your potential and worldly happiness. That's what we're inundated with. You know it's true all the time. We even say that people are good All the time, right? Oh yeah, so and so, he may have done X, but he's a good guy. What's that belief of innate goodness based on? But By saying people are good or believing ourselves to be inherently good, are we just really saying, this is what I think we're really saying, we're really just saying that we've never committed genocide, we don't kill kittens for sport, we don't root for Alabama, and we pay our taxes and vote or whatever, Right? And so it's impossible for people to come to the conclusion that they are sinners on their own. Because everyone's self witness is that they and those who are like them are basically good and occasionally just make mistakes. We think the problem isn't our hearts, but out there. You agree with that? But the Bible's consistent witness is that we are not inherently good. We are rebels and wretches. We have transgressed a holy God. And boy, does that sound like bad news. And that's because it is. It's the worst news. Is there worse news than knowing that you have transgressed a holy God? Is there? It's telling us that while we are made in the image of God and thus worthy of dignity and honor, that we have an eternal gulf. Separating us from our Creator because sin marred the image and ruined the relationship with God that we were created to have, and such talk I know is unpopular even in Christian circles. In fact, you know what I thought of in recent years. You may have noticed some changed the lyrics to the hymn "Amazing Grace" because some folks they didn't appreciate this line. "Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me." They didn't like all that talk. I'm not a wretch. So they changed it to either saved and strengthened me or saved and set me free. After all, who wants to be a wretch? But if we aren't wretches apart from Christ, what exactly are we being saved from? And for and what are we being freed from? Without a fundamental, deep, honest understanding of our position before a holy God and that we are indeed wretches, why would grace be amazing? And why would we need Jesus? And we can only know these things if the Holy Spirit comes and convicts us and reveals that our righteousness on our own is filthy rags and that we deserve eternal judgment because clearly no one else can do it. Nor wants to. The world is not going to tell you that. The mirror won't tell you that. And you're not going to come to that conclusion all on your own. What we need is the Spirit to come to us and convict us and then show us the truth of who Jesus is and what He's done for undeserving sinners. Without the Spirit convicting and illuminating Christ in His glory, there's simply no salvation. Someone has to point out our sinfulness and the depths of our need for outside rescue, and no one can do it to the extent that the Holy Spirit can. Let's use an illustration. Imagine, for example, that you are standing in utter darkness. Okay you can't see a thing. If you raise your hand in front of your face, you couldn't even see it. That's how pitch black it is. What can you do in this darkness? Nothing, I mean, you can walk forward, but you don't know what's ahead, right? Are there dangers? Are there obstacles? Probably, but you're honestly a bit afraid to know what's out there. But you also can't make any progress to safety without moving, right? So you're utterly helpless. Okay, but then say someone came up behind, came up from behind and leaned over your shoulder and turned on a bright flashlight. And it reveals some things that you, quite frankly, aren't trying to see, right? Maybe creatures, maybe a cliff stands directly in front of you. But then this person behind you shines the light to illuminate exactly the path you need to get to safety. The Holy Spirit does something similar. He comes to you. He shines a light on the creeping things in your heart and soul and affections. He reveals their danger. He shows you what they do to your soul. But then he shines a light on the beauty of Christ as the only means to life. J.I. Packer put it like this. He says, it is as if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulder on Jesus who stands facing us. The Spirit's message to us about Jesus is, look at him, see his glory, listen to him, hear his word, go to him, and have life. Get to know him and taste his gift of joy and peace. But you don't see that the Spirit's conviction, do you see that the Spirit's conviction goes hand in hand with what he does as comforter? Do you see that? The thing about, you see how Jesus refers to him, the Holy Spirit, in 1416 and 1426 and 1526 and 167 as helper that's what the ESV says. Does anybody else by the way want to shout out to have a different translation it doesn't say helper but something else advocate anybody else What's that counselor anybody else? everybody else has basically those three right The, the thing about this word is that there's no one English word that is equivalent to it. There just isn't. <laughs> Greek is much more robust language than English is, right? That's why all these translations have different words for it. The word can mean helper, comforter, advocate, or counselor. But no one of those words does the trick. <laughs> so like, think about helper. Helper seems to indicate like a mere aid rather than the presence of God. Comforter might seem like he's sort of someone who just shows up when you're depressed and pats you on the shoulder and says, they're there. Counselor or advocate seems to be a sort of detached legal representative in court. Counselor reminds us of someone who we go see and lay on a couch, right, while they take notes, (laughs) only to part ways after you paid them a ridiculous amount of money and they go home to their lives and you go home to yours. Tim Keller suggests friend, friend as this word for the Holy Spirit but in a way that's far more than a human friend you understand I find this helpful because what does a true friend do a true friend comforts and guides yes they help and they advocate they counsel and console and they're always there but what else do true friends do they convict and they keep convicting when it is needed for your good and growth. Like if, if, if I were to sit down with you and, and I said, tell me about your best friend in the whole world. This is what I would ask. In what ways do they spur you on to holiness? Do they confront you when you err? Do they point you to Christ? Because if not, if all they do is affirm and agree, if they never challenge you, I'd say you have a nice little acquaintance there. But not a deep and true friend. Let's think of a biblical illustration. Who was King David's best friend? You know who it was? It was Nathan. Wasn't it? You know why? You remember, after David prayed on Bathsheba, and then had her husband killed by sending him to the front line, David was fine, right? (laughs) Like, he was living his best life now. (coughs) He got away with it. He had a new wife. He didn't seem to feel bad about it at all. He didn't see anything wrong with it. So Nathan comes to him, and he's like... You like stories? Because I got one, (laughs) right? You remember this? David's like, yeah, I like stories. He's like, let me tell you a quick story, okay? There were two men, one rich and one poor. The rich man had everything he could want, including fields full of flocks. The poor man had nothing except one lamb. And that was like a family member, right? It was like a child grew up with his kids. They even, the, the, the lamb sat at their table when they ate dinner. Well, the rich man decided he didn't want to kill one of his own flock for his party, so he took the poor man's lamb and slaughtered it. David hears his story, flies into a rage. He's like, You take me to this guy. I'm gonna kill him. Right? He, he, how, could, he's like, how could somebody be so cruel? It's like David never heard of a man so mean and terrible. That the rich man in the story was like the worst guy David ever heard. <laughs> and he's like, I want to go kill this guy. What, you know what Nathan said? You remember? He pointed his old prophet finger at his face. what did he say? that's you thou art the man that man is you that's a good friend (laughs) because he convicted David of his sin he didn't cover over or try to justify it like some of our friends do and he caused David to realize that so he could repent right and that's why we have Psalm 51 that's what the Holy Spirit does at conversion and it's what he does throughout the Christian life He convicts us, he calls us on our sin, he illumines the dark things in our heart, but he doesn't stop there, does he? If he just showed us how bad we were, would that be good news? Would that be helpful? No, of course not. He shows us the beauty of Jesus. And he comforts us by showing us Christ and what he's done for sinners. And he leads us to true repentance And he helps us pull up our sin. And he helps us pursue holiness. And he consoles us by assuring us that our salvation does not hinge on our deeds, but on Christ's. Not our righteousness, but his. And as such, we ought to strive to be more like him. And the Holy Spirit helps us do just that in response to grace. And that leads us directly to point number three. The Spirit bears witness about Jesus. That's point number three. The Spirit bears witness about Jesus. Would you jump back to chapter 14 and jump down to verse 25? And let's read 25 and 26 again. It says, These things I have spoken to you a while, while I am still with you, but the helper of the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, would you jump to 1526? Look at 1526. But when the helper comes who I'll send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Okay. So Jesus says that both that the Holy Spirit would come to the disciples and teach them about Jesus and help them remember what Jesus taught them, and that the Spirit will bear witness about Jesus. And I think there's something arresting about this and how It speaks to the love and the humility of the Trinity. Have you ever thought about that? The the love and the humility of the Trinity. Just think about it. The Father sends the Son and is willing to suffer the pains of seeing the suffering of Jesus on behalf of sinners and rebels. And Jesus does his work in order that the Father may receive glory. Right? They're each pointing away from themselves to the other one. And the Holy Spirit teaches and bears witness to Jesus that Jesus would be glorified. So the Spirit's glory is found in Jesus receiving glory. Do you see? You understand that the Spirit's main concern is not that we would focus entirely or even primarily on Him. This would be to miss what He Himself intends to do through His work. The Spirit's desire is to open our eyes to see the glory and beauty and work of Jesus. That's what the Spirit intends to do. I mean, you look at the book of Acts. Just think about the book of Acts. The Spirit falls on Pentecost just like Jesus said it would. And what does this lead people to do? It leads them to confess that Jesus is the Christ. And throughout Acts, the Spirit leads the apostles and the early Christians to spread the gospel throughout the empire. And what does this prompt them to do? It prompts them to tell people about the glory of Christ. The Spirit testifies about Jesus so the disciples can testify about Jesus also. This is because the Spirit's concern is that people will know Jesus and to stir their hearts for the things of Christ so that they will come to know Him and thus be saved and indwelt by the Spirit, but for what reason? So that the Christian can then be stirred to think more and more of Jesus and less and less of self, so that they will grow in Christlikeness and tell others about Christ's surpassing glory. So churches that have an unbiblical emphasis on this Holy Spirit where He becomes the main focus or the center of the faith where he becomes a tool in order to have like the ecstatic experience are an error because clearly the spirit desires that the attention be on who? on Jesus. But churches that speak nothing of the holy spirit are also in grave error because as we said he is a member of the trinity and worthy of worship. This is why many churches, do you know this? lack power. because they don't rely on the holy spirit for anything right? You know that's true. They're content with doing things that they are capable of doing by their own might. The truth, however, lies somewhere in the middle of the extreme of focusing primarily on the Spirit, and on the other extreme of speaking rarely or never about Him. You want to know how you can know a church is Spirit-filled? You want to know how? How greatly is Jesus made much of? That's the answer. How can you know a church is spirit-filled? Are they doing laps in the, in the aisle? No. <laughs> Are they falling down and having these ecstatic experiences? Are they having dope music in a concert setting? No. It's how much is Jesus made of? That's how you can know. Albert Moore said, where you find a bold, biblical, urgent, accurate, enthusiastic, joyful, and life-changing testimony of Christ, you can rest assured that the Holy Spirit is vibrantly at work. I think of an illustration uh, by J.D. Greer. He gives in his book called Jesus Continued. He said he had a, a friend who was like a producer in a recording studio, and he was doing uh, a session with a Christian singer. And the sound technician thought it sounded great, uh, but about halfway through the first verse, the singer stopped, abruptly threw up her hands, and said, It's no use. Turn it off. He's not here. And the sound tech said through the studio mic, uh, Who's not here? <laughs> And she said, him, the Holy Spirit, his presence, it's missing, is what she said. So she called in her friends who were there, and they came in the studio, and they laid hands on equipment, and they dabbed it with oil, and they prayed for God's presence. Well, after a few minutes, she began to sing again. About 30 seconds in, she stopped, had her friends come in again, and repeat uh, the, the process. They prayed, they dabbed oil again, right? Again, she started, and again, she stopped. And again, in came the prayer posse. But this time, the sound tech was getting annoyed and his equipment was getting a little greasy. That's what Jesus said. Well, as she began the fourth time, he noticed the reverb on her monitor was turned off. So he reached down and he turned it up, at which point she put her hands in the air and said, Hallelujah, there he is. He's here. The sound tech didn't have the heart to tell her that it was just the reverb, right? Many Christians equate the presence of the Spirit with a sort of feeling or peace. Or an ecstatic experience during the worship service. Or that tingly feeling you get when the music crescendos just right. You ever have that feeling before? Or, or goosebumps or, or things like this. But friends, Jesus isn't pointing us or his disciple to those things here, is he? This isn't to say feelings are irrelevant or anything like that, okay? But they're lousy guides. And you know that because your hearts are what? the Morons, right? I mean, think about what we just talked about. Conviction. What Jesus explicitly says is something the Spirit does. Do you, have you ever in your life <laughs> heard somebody leave a worship service and say, I felt really convicted through the Word today. The Spirit really showed up. Rather, claims of Spirit involvement tend to be attached to other, more positive feelings we get. But the Spirit's primary ministry is to testify to you about Jesus at conversion and throughout your life. He constantly wants to point and point and point and illuminate and illuminate and illumine Jesus before your eyes. So the key to whether a church or a service is spirit-filled is more about how much of it was about Jesus and his glory and his work and his fame and his beauty. The spirit intends to point not primarily to himself but to Christ. You think of something like the Washington Monument. Have any of you guys been to that thing? Statue of Liberty? If you were to visit either of those sites at night, you would look up and you would take in the scene and you would consider the intricacies of the architecture or the size or the enormity of, uh, and things like this. You probably, what you probably wouldn't do is focus on the floodlights that are shining up on the monument, right? You wouldn't leave with your friend and and they would go, wasn't that such a beautiful statue? And you're like, I don't know, I was memorized by these spotlights, right? You wouldn't do that. You might consider them, right, for a moment and note how, wow, those are gigantic, but you'd be thankful for them because without them you couldn't see the monument at all. But ultimately you would focus on the statue. The Holy Spirit bears witness to the truthfulness of the gospel in our hearts and constantly points to Jesus. He lights up Jesus for us. And the primary way he does this, guess what? Is through his word. When Jesus tells the disciples that the Spirit will bring to recall all that he taught them, we must immediately consider that this happened through his inspiring the apostles to write what we call the New Testament, just as he did when he inspired the prophets in the Old Testament. We need to we do not look for new revelations. The word is sufficient. This is why the language of remembrance is important in 1426. For something to be brought to our remembrance, we need to have known it, right? You think that's fair to say? If some... If we're going to remember something, we would have to experience it first, right? Or learn it first. Like the other day, I, went to, uh, I got free tickets to a Hawks game through one of my friends, and uh, he almost killed us by driving the wrong way into traffic, okay? Now, if I came up to you this morning and I said, remember that time I almost died? <laughs> You'd be like, no, because I wasn't there, right? <laughs> like You have to experience it to remember it. You can't remember something you don't know or haven't experienced. This is one of the many reasons why we should be diligent about studying the Spirit-inspired Word of God. By coming to corporate worship, by coming to midweek studies and Sunday school and life groups, through all of these ordinary means of grace, the Spirit works to help us understand His Word. And then, through our daily lives, He can bring them to remembrance, you see? Greer says, the most reliable guide to the will of God is the Word of God. The Spirit primarily guides us to obey God's revealed commands, adopt His values, and become the kind of people He wants us to be. Do you see? This is a fitting segue into our fourth and final point, last point, number four. The Spirit enables us to obey and bear fruit. The Spirit enables us to obey and bear fruit. Look again at 1418. And let's read 18 through 24 quickly, okay? Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you that yet a little while in the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. Verse 20. In that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas and Iscariot said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will do what? Keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him, make our home to him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my what? And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So do you notice how Jesus repeatedly points to obeying his commands? And remember, this obedience is in the context of his farewell discourse. In other words, he intends for them to remember and keep his commands as a way of life after he ascends, right, and sends uh, the Holy Spirit to enable them on Pentecost. So we must also notice that Jesus' expectation is for his followers to show forth their love for him through their obedience and through their love for one another. But how can we obey? can we do it on our own? What do you think? Can we? Without the Spirit, do you think we can do it? (laughs) Can we do it through our own might? Can we do it through sheer grit and determination? No! We can obey because the Holy Spirit enables us. We simply cannot obey Christ in a God-glorifying way without the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It is only those who love him who can keep his commandments, and only those who have the Spirit can love him. Do you see? Reeves says that what we get when we receive the Holy Spirit is not a package of blessing. It is his own life he shares with us. He says the Spirit is not some divine milkman leaving the gift. You remember milkman, by the way? What a dated reference, Michael, right? Right? <laughs> <coughs> Spear is not some divine but he's he's British so maybe they do that over there. Spear is not some divine milkman leaving the gift of life on our doorsteps only to move on having given us life. He does not move on, he stays to make that life blossom and grow. He he doesn't mean to leave us as he found us. It is true, yes, that God loves us so much that he will meet us where we are. Isn't that true? And that no one is too bad No one is too bad to receive his grace, but it's also true that he loves us too much to leave us where he found us. He means to change us and grow us in the likeness of the glorious Christ, to kill sin, to love Jesus, to be drawn to him, to cast off idols and selfishness. Reformer William Tyndale, he put it beautifully, he said, where the spirit is, there it is always summer. For there... There are always good fruits, that is to say, good works, just as the Spirit makes us warm with life by turning our hearts and their desire to Christ, so he continues to warm us. Adds Reeves, the new life the Spirit gives is a life of warmth, for it is his own life of delighting in the Father and Son, and he rears us up precisely by warming our hearts to them. And as our hearts warm, we love Christ more, and we desire what he desires for us, which is obedience for our good and growth and his glory. Only when we are attached to Christ, the true vine of chapter 15, can we bear fruit. And how are we attached to the vine? The Holy Spirit. Do you see? What fruit will we bear? Love for God, love for our brothers, lived out in meaningful, concrete actions evident to others. It is not immorality or impurity or sensuality or idolatry or enmities or strife or division or flesh or outbursts of anger or drunkenness. Those are things of the earth. Those are the fruits of the devil. It is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, not in an abstract, ethereal way, but shown through our lives. And this is only possible through who? I will start over. Okay? I haven't preached for three weeks. I got time, man. This is only possible through who? Thank you. You notice, do you notice all those things I listed? You know the fruits of the spirit from Galatians? They're all other directed. Yes? Aren't they? Yeah, <laughs> you talk to a guy and he's like, Yeah, I'm patient. And you're like, okay. <laughs> like, you got to see him when he gets real mad to understand if he's actually patient, right? Because the more we grow in the Spirit, the more we will think of Christ and the less we will think of who? I'm glad y'all weren't like you, Vaughn, right? That would have been very rude. But you're right, okay? The more we think of Christ, the less we will think of ourselves. We'll become less self-obsessed and more Christ-obsessed. How can you know, have you ever wondered, how can you know someone is mature or maturing in Christ by asking this, how much do they make of Christ? Compared to how much they make of themselves, do they talk much of Christ? Do they desire more of Christ? Do they obsess with his glory and beauty? Do they think primarily of others, never trying to get things for themselves? Or do they make much of self? Are they concerned with their kingdoms and their names and their prestige and their glory and their reputation? Or are they more and more infatuated with Jesus? That's maturation. The Spirit draws us to obey. He empowers us to obey. He causes us to bear fruit all through what we've talked about today and what we'll talk about in the next two weeks. He, being God, comes to us and He convicts us. He speaks the truth of Christ to us. He enables us to repent. He enables us to submit to Christ. He shows us more and more through His Word who Jesus is, and He transforms our fickle hearts more and more as we lean on Him and turn our eyes to the illumined Christ. But the Spirit, you understand, is not after mere external performance, but in bringing us into loving and finding our joy in Jesus. Says Reeves once more, I love this, he says, at the heart of our transformation into the likeness of the Son, is our sharing of his deep delight in the Father. In our love and enjoyment of the Son, we are like the Father. In our love and enjoyment of the Father, we are like the Son. That is the happy life the Spirit calls us to. So let me ask, friend, do you know this Holy Spirit? Do you know him as a person? Would you say you experience his power in your life? Do you see him move to point you to Jesus? Now, if you're here and you don't know the Holy Spirit, if he's never come and indwelled you, if you have never responded as convicting of your sin by truly repenting, today's the day to behold Christ's glory to see who, how the Spirit is pointing you to your need of Him and to give your life over to Him and thus receive the Spirit. To the Christian, I, I, I know I can't say it as well as Charles Spurgeon did when he said this to his church nearly 50 years ago. He said, dear brothers, honor the Spirit of God as you would honor Jesus Christ if He were present. If Jesus Christ were dwelling in your house, you would not ignore Him. You would not go about your business as if He were not there. do do not ignore the presence of the Holy Spirit in your soul. I beseech you, do not live as if you had not heard whether there were any Holy Spirit. Love Him, obey Him, worship Him. In all your learning, ask Him to teach you. In all your suffering, ask Him to sustain you. In all your teaching, ask Him to give you the right words. In all your witness bearing, ask Him to give you constant wisdom. And in all your service, depend on Him for His help.